And this is Christoginia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, October 12, 2013. <clears throat> Tonight we will present part two of our series explaining two seed line. Pragmatic Genesis. When I say pragmatic genesis, I mean practical genesis, a practical interpretation of genesis which can be demonstrated from scripture. Genesis that the scripture teaches us. Christ said during his ministry, as recorded in several Gospels, that he came to reveal secrets which were, he came to reveal things which were kept secret since the world began. Therefore, to understand Genesis, we have to look at it through the lens of the New Testament and the words of Christ in the Gospels and in the Revelation. We don't read the book of Genesis, cut it off from the rest of Scripture, and make up our own story. That's why this is pragmatic Genesis. It's Genesis according to the entire Scripture. We're not going to allow for harebrained ideas which are not found and supported by the Scripture the whims and fancies of men. Each one of these programs will have as its prerequisites the programs which preceded before it. 
in this series. That's just a necessity. We can't keep repeating ourselves from week to week as we endeavor to build a foundation upon which all identity Christians should understand the book of Genesis. To summarize last week's program, if one is going to distinguish between Adam, the simple noun, Genesis 1.26, Genesis 5.1, as ha-adam, which is actually the noun with an article and a preposition, Genesis 1.27, Genesis 2.7, and ha-adam, Adam, the particular Adam, Adam with the proper Hebrew article, the definite article. If one is going to distinguish between those atoms, and, and there are other forms of the word which are grammatical, in the creation account of Genesis, assuming that these grammatical terms represent different creations of Adam, then those distinctions must hold up throughout all of Scripture. However, as we proved last week, with all certainty, they do not hold up at all. They don't even hold up as far as Genesis chapter 5. In truth, they are only grammatical differences having to do with the way that the noun is used in a sentence. And all references to Adam throughout the entire Bible represent the same Adamic man, either the first Adam, as Paul of Tarsus said, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. There can't be Adams before Adam. That's a clear violation of any sound principle of interpreting Scripture. There were no Adams before Adam, and Adam was the first man. Therefore, there were no men before Adam. Paul's telling us that the one and only Adam of Genesis was the first man. Now, while it's fully apparent that there were other hominids on earth before Adam, our mistake from the beginning was in considering them to be man. Just because we dragged them out of the jungles and dressed them up in our clothing doesn't make them man. And we've made that mistake where we refer to these other races and all the half-breeds in between as men. We've made that mistake since the dawn of time. In a perfect world, it was a mistake that would have never been made. Once again, I have sword brethren with me, and we're going to... We're going to walk through Genesis chapter 1. I don't think we'll get much into Genesis chapter 2, but that's fine. Hello, Brian. Well, you um, made a reference to Matthew 13. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. And I just wanted to cover one more thing real quick out of Matthew 13, not too much of a diversion. It says, as therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. And that's mainly to address a mainstream point. I, I came across the site of a patriotard who claims that all the seed of the serpent, he acknowledges that there was serpent seed and that Satan fathered Cain. He says all the serpent seed was drowned in the flood 
and that the flood covered the whole world and there is no more serpent, serpent seed today. We're all 100% human. Well, then who are the tares that are being gathered to be burned? Well, well, right, which were planted at the beginning of the world. <clears throat> right. they, they were planted by the enemies at the beginning of the world, right? Right. At, and, at the and, and they were society. Tares are not referred to as bad wheat. You know, it's, it's right. the one thing. We're, we're not differentiating between good wheat, bad wheat, and tares. Tares are they're absolutely worthless. They look like wheat. They're hard to distinguish, but you can't eat them. They're poisonous, and they're not good for anything. It's not but just wheat several, that's gone bad. There's several other scriptures that disprove that. Luke chapter 11, where, where Christ... Um, where Christ tells the Pharisees, or, or at least certain of the Pharisees whom he's, who are disputing with him in, in the temple, he tells them that they are respon- that their race, their genos, is responsible for all the blood of the prophets from the blood of Abel. Now, now the only people that could be responsible for the blood of Abel scripturally are the descendants of Cain. Right. Now, that's backed up in John 8, 44, where he, where he tells them that their father and his father are not the same, and that they are of their father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning. And a liar. Well, that the only people, that the only person who was a murderer from the beginning is Cain, who was right. a devil. There's a reason why he was a devil. Well, now, that, that, now, thirdly, we have Kenites in... And, and, and they're, they're, they're the descendants of Cain in Genesis chapter 15, several chapters after the flood. Why do we have Kenites? Absolutely. He so, also declared that... We're going to, um, what we're going to put on a much fuller ex- exhibition of this in, when we discuss Genesis chapter 3 in a couple of weeks. Right. And furthermore, though, you, you mentioned that Christ said he was a murderer from the beginning... He was also accused of being a liar from the beginning, and Cain was the first humanoid who told a lie. I mean, the, the first lie was Satan when he said, surely thou shalt not die, thou shalt be as God. But Cain, when Yahweh asked, where is Abel? Cain basically said he didn't know. When he said, am I my brother's keeper? That was, one, throwing a sarcastic question back at Yahweh, and two, that was kind of a flippant, around, you know, beating around the bush sort of way of saying, I don't know. It's not, is it my job to keep track of him? And he exactly knew where his brother was. Absolutely. Well, well, that's you know, there are so many people that want to create their own interpretations of Scripture because they have a worldview that they need to support. And that's our biggest problem: is that doing that, what we discard a good portion of Scripture, or 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 we twist what the Bible is actually telling us. And we should not want to do that. What we should want to um, create a religious Weltanschauung that adheres to the Word of God. If our Weltanschauung is different from the Word of God, then we are not in agreement with our Creator and His Christ. It's that simple. We want to try to bend ourselves and form ourselves after the word of God and scripture, we do not want to try to bend the scripture into a worldview which is convenient for us because then we just create pretzels. Right. And before we get off John 8, it also says here 
I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. He didn't say you refuse to accept my word. He said my word has no place in you. Like what it was in Thessalonians you covered during that Bible study. It doesn't say for the faith is not for, um, it, it says for the faith is not for all men. That's what it's supposed to say, but they translate it for not all men have faith, as though it's some temporary it, it, it's under their control, and if they just decide to start having faith, they'll have faith. Four simple Greek words that mean the faith is not for all, period. Uh, and, and and saying that, that, they add the word man, they add the word have, the verb, and, and they twist it into a pretzel. They swap, that they flip the subject and the object. <laughs> it, it's incredible. Some of the translations are, are incredibly, blatantly um, perverted. Some of them are. And the only descendants of Abraham, well, the only people who could claim some remote connection to Abraham while claiming that they've never been in bondage to any man would have to be the Edomites because they were never carried away into captivity. And they had well, to... well, and even they were in bondage to Israel in the time of, of, of King David. However, the Edomites, you know, Christ, Christ upbraided the Pharisees time and again for really not knowing the Scripture, right? But the, is, the children of Israel could not claim never to have been in bondage. They were in bondage several times. Right. They were all in bondage in Egypt, without exception. The Edomites are not legitimate heirs to Abraham, though. If one of, if one of your kids goes off and marries a Mexican, and then ten years later they come by and they have a little toddler, and they say, here's your grandson, and the grandson says, I'm of you, Bill, you just say, I never knew you. Well, well, that represents the problem we've had all down through history. The Edomites... Yeah, you know, we're going to talk about this at length later in the series when we get past um, Genesis chapters 3, 5, 6, and, and 15, and, and into the story of Jacob and Esau. Well, we're going to talk at length about the difference between Jacob and Esau. I actually did a program on Jacob and Esau. It, it was a brief 30-minute talk on the Euro program. It's got like, uh, I don't know, 21, 22,000 downloads. We're, we're going to... Um, I'm going to drag those notes out wherever I have them. I think I may have done it off the cuff. I'll have to re-listen to the program. I don't know, but I'll um, I'll have to drag those notes out. And, and we're going to discuss that at even greater length because there's a lot to the story of Jacob and Esau. There's a serious reason why Yahweh chose Jacob and Esau to be the centerpiece of world history from the time when... Isaac was sacrificed on the altar. There's a serious um, reason for that, in, in, and symbolically in Scripture. And, and um, we'll discuss that at length in Genesis. I, I think it's when we get up around Genesis chapter 26, 27, 28. Well, we're not going to cover every chapter of Genesis in a two-seed-line series. We don't need to, but we have to cover through Genesis chapter 10, and we have to go to chapter 12, chapter 15, and, and we can move on a little more quickly from there. What we can, um, that there's a lot of material in the prophets that, that um, is, is indicative of, of the truth of two-seed-line theology, but there's a lot of things in the prophets I'd also like to discuss that two-seed-line teachers and pastors like to misuse, like Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel and the lamentation of, of the king of Tyre and things like that. So they all have to be discussed before we move on to the New Testament.
I, I expect, I suspect this series to probably last um, two dozen segments. That that's a guess off the top of my head. Tonight we'd like to start with um, a walk through Genesis chapter one again, and and talk about some things that are important. And and these things may not all affect two C line, but they they all affect um, what whether one has a solid foundation for an understanding of Scripture or not, and, and that's important. You were saying? I'm just saying I have no objections. If, it, if that's how long it takes, that's how long it'll take. Well, well, right. It might take that long to, to, to do this thoroughly. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing, right? It might be quicker. Genesis 1? I'm not just going to slap it together and claim that there's six different atoms because, oh, I thought... Um, <laughs> right. Six different atoms and, and five different sets and, and now we can squeeze some niggers in there somewhere because we've we, we've obscured the real story to the degree where people will believe just about anything. Or or at least we hope they do. Would you like to read Genesis one one, that this first section, the first day? In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, we were discussing earlier that some people have an issue with this, that the earth was without form and void. Well, well there's, you know, there's a lot of people that believe in this gap theory, that there's a great gap of time in between Genesis one one and Genesis one two, and 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 they want to use that to Genesis one two that they want to claim that it says that the earth became without form and void. Well, no, and the is. I'm sorry. I was just saying it would have been without form from the instant it was created. It would have been void. So as soon as God's done creating earth. The creation of Earth is over, basically. It's there, and now it's without form and void. The instant the creation well, right. is over. And that's what the Hebrew, the Hebrew grammar insists. That there are many identity Christians who have been deceived by the ridiculous lie, often called the gap theory, which even Wesley Swift and Bertrand Compré helped to preponderate this theory. And they did, and it's shameful. That somehow, here the Earth is described as having become void and formless. And, and, and they like to say that there was a prior civilization on this earth, and it was destroyed before the creation account of Genesis chapter 1. Well, that's and, all and, conjecture and speculation. Well, well the, the gap theory, the, the source, I don't know if he was the author of it, okay, but I do know that it is in his Bible notes, okay? The Schofield Bible. He's the one... That kike bastard is the one that preponderated and popularized this gap theory. However, if the gap theory was true, why is it necessary that heaven, which is defined in the fourth day of the Genesis creation as the sun, the moon, and the stars, why is it necessary that heaven also had to be created? Why why, why is it necessary... After Genesis 1-2, where we see in Genesis 1-3, 
that God said, let there be light. Did that prior civilization in the gap, did they live in darkness? <laughs> well, a simple analogy I can think of. If we build a house, the house is complete, and now we're writing, and the house was empty. That doesn't mean we emptied the house. It was empty because we completed building it, and a finished house is typically empty until you move stuff in. It doesn't mean there were people living there before, and we moved them out. Well, well precisely. Now, some of the proponents of the gap theory like it because they think that it, it explains why there were men here before Adam. Well, well, there couldn't have been men here before Adam, but there were certainly hominids here before Adam, and, and we're going to discuss that. But we don't need the gap theory to, to, to discuss that. We don't need the gap theory to demonstrate that. We don't need to... Um, to tell stories about Genesis 1, 2, tell these fantastic stories about some ancient destruction of the planet, but which nobody can prove, which nobody can substantiate. We don't need those stories to show that there were hominids here before Adam. The Bible teaches, the Bible teaches that there were hominids here before Adam. And, and we will get to that in, in its proper course, because that really, that, that's really a discussion for Genesis chapter 2, where the Bible first mentions them. And, and, and we should probably wait for that point. However, only suckers fall for fascinating tales who are never happy with the revelation that we have by the Word of God. And, and therefore, they're willing to swallow all these elaborations by men so that they could feel important that they are, are the proclaimers of some secret truth and, and some great new way of looking at something, but when, when it's absolutely contrary to Scripture. One of the major proponents of this gap theory, um, Oral Roberts and Jimmy Swaggart. Well, of course, and, and, and Joe November. The grammar of Genesis 1-2 makes the gap theory impossible. The opening word of the verse is merely avav, the one-letter word that means and, right? And by itself, the vav is a particle conjunction, and its translation depends upon the context. It, it could be and, it could be so, it could be but, it could be then, it could be therefore, or any one of several other possibilities, right? But regardless, the vav hooks the clause which follows it to the clause or word which precedes it, which in this case is all of Genesis 1-1, right? God created the earth, and the earth was, form, was without form and void. Now, it can't really be asserted that this vav in this case means and then, and, and this is complex. It, it's Hebrew grammar, right? It's not simple. That the, um, the vav is used in different ways as a as a conjunction in Hebrew, and the first use of that, the vav in Genesis 1-2, where, where we see a sentence which begins with and, right? That vav stands alone, and it prefixes the noun for earth, and that vav is called a vav conjunctive by Hebrew grammarians. Now, in Genesis 1-3, we have a vav which is followed by another letter, a yod. And together, they prefix the verb for said, which is translated said in the King James. That vav is called a vav consecutive by Hebrew grammarians. Okay? 
So what happens is with the Vav conjunctive, that the idea that the earth was void and formless in Hebrew grammar adds to the idea that God had just created it. So it didn't become void and formless, right? Where in Genesis, Genesis, that's the Vav conjunctive, and that's the the form of the word. And in Genesis 1-3, we have what's called a Vav consecutive, where we have a, a progression, and the Spirit of God moved upon the waters, and then God said, let there be light. And, and there's actually a difference with, with the one character that, that demonstrates the difference between the Vav conjunctive and the Vav consecutive. Oh. And, and that's Hebrew grammar. And, and again, the people that want to invent a gap theory don't know anything about Hebrew grammar, just, about, just like the people that want to invent two different atoms should really be inventing six different atoms if that their uh, misunderstandings of Hebrew grammar were correct. Well, what they should really be doing is learning basic English grammar. Well, well, that would be a start, right? Because they probably don't know what a conjunction is. Right, so the people here that want to cram the word became into verse 2, it doesn't belong in verse 2. Well, well right, it not, it's not. The earth was void because the earth being void it is directly connected to and, and can't really be separated from the fact that the earth was just created. Now... If you want to think that a civilization existed between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, then you have to imagine that that civilization existed without light. It existed without night. It existed without day. It existed without a sun and moon and stars. And it existed without any sort of division between land and water. Existed without and right, no division between land and water, and we'll get onto that in, in a little bit when we see um, the next section, the next verses in Genesis. We we have the creation of the continents and the separation of the elements, which is necessary to sustain life. And the supposedly the civilization was so inconsequential it doesn't even write a single verse detailing, and the civilization that existed previously was destroyed and removed. It's just uh, well, not what happens, and the the the, um, the signal example is in Jeremiah chapter four, right? In Jeremiah chapter four, the prophet is writing about the destruction coming upon Judea at the hand of the Babylonians. Okay, and Jeremiah borrows language from Genesis chapter one verse two to describe poetically the extent of the destruction upon Jerusalem by the hand of the Babylonians, that the land had become without void and formless. So people that are proponents of the gap theory take that and try to say that Jeremiah is actually explaining that the ancient destruction of this great civilization that existed in between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2. And those people are idiots because Jeremiah is clearly explaining the destruction of Judea at the hand of the Babylonians. And right. you can't take that out of context and apply it to anything else. In um, Jeremiah 4.23, I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void in the heavens, and they had no light. He's basically saying it's going to be as though you had never been. Well, well right. He's basically saying that this is a total destruction of the land, and it's a horrible thing come upon it. And he's using this language from Genesis poetically to describe it, but he's talking about the destruction of Judea at the hand of the Babylonians. 
He's not talking about um, Salutrians. He's not talking about the, the, some ancient Cro-Magnon kingdom. He's not talking about some primordial people who were here, who, who were destroyed in the judgment of God, but which is basically what these clowns that, 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 that pushed this gap theory are promoting. And it, it makes people think, you know, it plays on people's emotions because when you teach these things to the simple-minded, it makes them feel important. It makes them feel as if they've been let on on some great new secret that, that very few people know. And, and they're suckers, and they swallow it hook, line, and sinker. But it's not the scripture. They think, that, they think, that, you know, they think it explains the fossil record. There's other ways to explain the fossil record that are co consistent with scripture. We don't need a gap theory. We don't need to add the scripture to explain what we find in the natural world. We're bending the Bible into science and, and screw science. Science is only the assertions and, and, and false knowledge of men. Let's take the, the, the things that were actually dug out of the ground and, and let's um, measure them through Scripture and interpret them through Scripture. And, and that's the sound way to do it because the Word of God is forever. And, and the science of man is consistently shifting and changing and, and, and being spun this way and that way. And, and that's not the way to twist our Bibles. You believe the Bible first. You believe the Word of God first. Sometimes the Word of God is hard to establish. Some things are lost in translation. Some things have been contorted. We have to examine all these different manuscripts. We have to try to come up with the best reading, and, and that's fine. There are some things that are going to be hard to understand, but most of the Word of God is very easily understood. And if we believe it, as Christ and the apostles clearly believed it, because Jesus Christ, he put his imprimatur on this Genesis account. When Christ quoted Genesis 1.26, he made the male and female from the beginning, Christ was putting his stamp of approval on this Genesis account. And if he put his stamp of approval on it, it's good enough for me. And that's how we should look at it. But don't try to understand the Bible through science. Try to understand science through the Bible because the Bible comes first and the Word of God is forever. Period. And we don't need stories, crazy wild stories that add to the Word of God in, in order to basically apologize to these secular humanist scientists. Who, who have taken these findings and twisted them their way and made their own false paradigm. I'm not going to try to understand the Bible according to their, well, well, bullshit. Yeah, I said it. There's other ways to understand the findings of the natural world. We don't need to twist the Bible to do it. Yeah, you know, there's four assertions. I probably rambled too much on this topic, right? I'm sorry. There's four assertions related to the first three opening chapters of Genesis. And these four assertions which are made have no second witness to support them. If they have a first witness, and the gap theory doesn't even have a first witness, right? And for each 
of these assertions, well, even if they do have a first witness, their first witnesses are easily challenged. And those four assertions of the gap theory, that's got to go. The idea that there were multiple creations of men called by the same name, that, that's a violation of God's law, right? It's not kind after kind. It, it's three kinds after one kind. That's crazy. That idea's got to go. We got rid of that last week. The idea that Adamic man was given explicit dominion over all so-called other races of people, whether they be beasts of the field or not, that idea is wrong. That's not scriptural. That's got to go. And we're going to pull that apart too. And the idea that Cain was actually the son of Adam, which we see in Genesis 4.1, well, Genesis 4.1 is corrupt, and there's no second witness to that. And we don't accept that either, and that's got to go. All four of these ideas are bad ideas, and they're really not supported by Scripture, as we shall see. Are you still with me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I haven't dropped out. Okay. <laughs> Genesis, um, do you want to read? Well, we don't really need to read these the subsequent verses, but I will from Genesis 1-3. And God said, let there be light. So, so if there was an, a civilization earlier than that, it, it was in the darkness, right? And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and morning were the first day. Well, you know, Genesis. The, the naysayers could, I, I suppose, start jumping up and down. Well, God said, let there be light, but then he never specifically created the light. You know, the, the the people who want to say there are two different creations, and God said, let us make man in our image, and then in 27, so God created man in his image. It's not well, well, right. We always have the pattern in Genesis is the proposal, and yeah. then the, the fulfillment of his word, because God, all things are created by the word of God. So we have the proposal of God, let there be light, and then there was light. We have God saying, let us make man. And then in the next verse, God made man. Right. And, and man became a fact. We have the proposal, and then we have the actual matter, the fact of the creation. Absolutely. So basically, God is making a declaration of intent, and then he's fulfilling the declaration. Well, most of the people that want to interpret Genesis privately don't know the rest of Scripture. They haven't read the rest of the Bible. You can't just pick up the Bible and read Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 and understand them. No, read the whole Bible because there are many statements in the subsequent books of the Bible and especially in the New Testament that are going to clarify these first few chapters for us. Likewise, you can't pick up the Bible, and I tried this, and, and I realized I was stupid doing it. I really did. I ain't lying. In, in, in 1978, my mother had a King James Bible on the shelf, and I, I figured I'm going to read the Revelation and see what it says. And I read the Revelation, and I had not a clue what it said. But I also didn't have the wherewithal at the time to do the studying that, that was necessary to understand the Revelation. And that's a long study. And, and if I pray that I understand it now, 
Well, well, okay, I studied for 20 years to understand the revelation. That's what it takes. And, and my understanding is probably still limited, even though I wrote a book on it, right? Well, you know, the, the most common attitude I see with the evangelicals, I had one explicitly tell me when I asked what concordance she was using and what kind of studying she did. She said she just reads it in the English and the King James Version, and she trusts that God is going to give her the right understanding. Right, and that's just the attitude of so many of them. And Paul says, study to show thyself approved. The, the Beroians, the, the men of Beroia heard Paul's message, and he considered them, Paul of Tarsus considered them a more noble race, because when they heard his message, they searched the scriptures and studied the scriptures. They didn't just listen to Paul and look up to the sky and say, God, is he right? Yeah. If the sun shines tomorrow, Paul is right, okay? And, and the sun shines tomorrow and Paul is right. No, they went back into the scriptures and searched the scriptures. Things don't come to us on silver platters. Well, we're not all prophets of God that, that messages come. The, the, the guy that thinks he has truth from God and, and gets this straight from God is a clown, Study the scripture, and what you're, you're, what you're espousing better be based firmly on the scripture. And, and there can't be any scripture to refute you, because if you have an idea about the scripture and other scriptures refute you, you're wrong. The scripture's not wrong. You're wrong. Your understanding falls short. Like if you say, oh, all Israel is not going to be saved, and the scripture says, all the seed of Israel shall be saved, you have a problem. Oh, there's going to be other races in the kingdom of heaven, and the scripture says, unless a man is born from above, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. You have a problem. Don't dispute with that scripture. Conform yourself to Christ. And all these clowns want to make up their own stories about Genesis. And they're refuted. They're refuted by Hebrew grammar. They're refuted by the meanings of words and their use in later scriptures. They're refuted by the scriptures themselves and explicit statements. Let's well, believe the scripture. They decide what sort of values they are going to adhere to and what sort of message they want to teach. And then they try and find scripture to reinforce that message. And if they don't find any... They try and force Scripture into fitting that message. That's not a particularly academically honest way to proceed. If you commission me to conduct a study and you say, I want you to conduct a study and I want you to conclude this, well, then it's not an honest study. You're just asking me to rubber stamp something and find some evidence that will corroborate it or invent the evidence. Well, of course. And we have to understand the entire Scripture. And that takes study. Right. So if you base your entire ministry on one verse from one encounter in the Gospel of Matthew, well, then you don't really have a ministry. No. No, you have an agenda. Okay, Genesis 1-6. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, well, we understand that a little better in the next verse, right? And divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. 
the firmament must be the, the actual continents, the, the land masses of the earth, right? right. And it was so. so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. So the gap theory proponents, it must have been a water world civilization, right? All the people were living in the water because the continents hadn't been created yet, right? It, it was all just water. Well, well, right. Here the lands and waters are, are, are separated on an earth that was formless and void, that was empty. Here he made the, the seas and, and the... Um, uh, I'm sorry, that, that's in the next verse, he makes the seas and the land, right? Here he's creating the atmosphere is what he's doing. But the firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters and God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above. Ah, okay. that, that's the creation of the atmosphere. Right. And we may want to one day discuss the idea that perhaps the planet had, and, and a lot of people like to talk about this, that we might want to discuss the idea that perhaps at one time the planet had a much richer atmosphere before the flood of Noah. And, and that's kind of indicated here, but I don't necessarily interpret this passage alone in that manner. But the words of Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 are intriguing in that regard. Now, well, where it says that it, it never rained, right? But a mist, a mist came up in the earth and, and watered the plant life, right? So, oh. so that's kind of intriguing. That, that kind of indicates that we had a much richer atmosphere. And, and some people believe that this richer atmosphere would account for the much longer lifespans of the patriarchs. What, which diminished gradually after the flood of Noah. And, and that makes sense, and I won't dispute it, but, but it's kind of peripheral to two seed line and, and any investigations of Genesis for historical and theological reasons. It, it's kind of peripheral, so we might just want to place it on the back burner. I've just proven hollow earth theory. So this gap civilization <laughs> that's existing, they have to exist somewhere, and the earth is without form and void. It's empty. So they must, they must have existed inside the earth. The earth was hollow. It's well, well, that's another harebrained theory that people try to incorporate into Christian identity and, and insist upon, and, and it's another harebrained theory that can't be demonstrated one way or the other unless you want to walk to the North Pole and cover every square inch of it. Well, the North Pole isn't even a landmass. Sometimes it's frozen over. Other times it's just open ocean. And, and Right, and, and there are some people that call themselves Christian identity pastors or teachers, and they want to believe that the Nazis are at the South Pole and they're going to save us any moment now, but, but um, I wouldn't right. teach that. What's the wait? If they can save us any moment, why not yesterday? Right. I, I, I wouldn't go there. I, I, all, all these hairbrain theories are ridiculous, and, and they're all circus, circus sideshows is what they are. If the Nazis are... At the South Pole, what are they doing there? I mean, did they set up a geriatrics ward? I mean, they almost be about 95 now. I would agree. Well, well maybe they're in that richer atmosphere, and, and like Methuselah, they're going to live for another 900 years. They've set up a cybernetic research center, and they've transplanted their brains in the robot bodies. <laughs> would you like to read the third day creation from Genesis 1-9? All right. 
And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. So uh, an apple tree isn't going to bring forth oranges? Never going to happen. No, sir. You know, you're not going to plant potatoes and wind up with corn? And if you plant potatoes next to cabbages, you probably won't end up with yams. (laughs) Well, maybe if Monsanto has their way someday, you will. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind and God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. And this refutes the so-called gap theory, since evidently up to this point there were no continents, there were no oceans. To support the civilization that they claim existed prior to this point, uh, unless you want to take the term mud people that literally, and, and evidently according to scripture, up to this point the separation of the elements which is necessary to support life had not yet occurred. So, so uh, Sorry for the laughter, I just had a mental image of a bunch of people laying around in the mud and eating each other for food. <laughs> right, literal mud people. You, you know, as Clifton Emmerheiser pointed out, in, in his series of essays entitled Lies Masquerading as the Truth, Genesis chapter 1, no matter how, many, how much people want to insist that it is, Genesis chapter 1 is not written as a detailed scientific account of creation in perfect step-by-step chronological order. It's just not. If it were, then here we have grass and plants growing before there existed a sun and a moon. Since plant life cannot exist without the sun, as there would be no way for the chemical process of photosynthesis to operate upon which all plant life depends, then this creation account must be understood as something other than an exact chronological narrative. And it must be. We should esteem esteem the Genesis 1 creation account to be a series of six episodes. And each episode describes different facets of the creation in a poetic and non-chronological fashion with the pinnacle of that creation being the creation of Adamic man. Each of these episodes may or may not supply greater detail of the creation already explained in the preceding episodes. The creation is described in six parts, which are days or ages, so that man has a model for his own Sabbath work cycle, which is revealed later in Scripture. Now the creation account, these six episodes are layered so that more is developed as each episode is revealed. However, the proof of this assertion is in the next part, in the fourth day. Uh, I don't know, you want to read the fourth day creation right. from Genesis one fourteen. And God said, let there be lights, 
in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And basically this repeats everything but but it develops it further, as I said. It repeats what we saw in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, where God said, let there be light, and it was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and verse 5, and God called the light day and the darkness night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And, and here again we have basically a creation of the sun, moon, and stars retold in Genesis 1, 14 through 19. This alone indicates that each day of creation should not be interpreted as a literal 24-hour period, since those periods are not even fully explained before the account of the fourth day. They weren't created, the 24-hour day periods, before the sun and the moon, right? Rather, the day of Genesis can be better interpreted as an epoch, or an age. However, we, what we see here on this fourth day can't be the actual creation of the sun and moon because light and day and night were created on the first day. Rather, what we see here is a further explanation of the creation of the light, the day, and the night, which were actually created on the first day. So the account, the Genesis account of creation does indeed repeat itself and give us more detail, just like Genesis 126 and 127, and then Genesis chapter 2. Here we have recapitulation. Right here we have recapitulation. There are other examples of recapitulation in Genesis. There's recapitulation from the last verse of Genesis chapter 10 into Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, the whole chapter is a recapitulation of the last verse of Genesis chapter 10, talking about the Tower of Babel and the Plain of Shinar. But here we have a recapitulation. The whole fourth day is a recapitulation of part of the first day creation. It's a recapitulation. Because light and day and night were already created. It's being repeated here in more detail. And the people that want to make two Adam, two Adamic creations, they say, oh, Genesis 2, the Bible doesn't repeat itself. Genesis 2 is not a recapitulation of Genesis 1. It's a separate creation. Well, if that was true, then here we have a new sun, a new moon, and new stars, and new light. What was wrong with the old light? <laughs> what the hell was wrong with the light that was created on the first day? God said that was good. So, well, we have two Earths. We have one earth with, I guess, three Adams and another earth with three Adams. Each one has six, and each earth gets its own sun and its own moon because there's two creations. I guess so, and, and, and the six different kinds of Adamic man need a, th they need a third set of heavens in Genesis 2-4, right? That's nonsensical. 
Well, well I, I mean, in Genesis 2.1, it says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. And then in Genesis 2.4, it says, these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created, in the day that Jehovah God made earth and heaven. In the day. So we have a third universe. Well, or does the story recapitulate? So and talking about and, multiple dimensions and multiple universes. It's got to be one or the other, right? There have to be six atoms, um, twelve atoms, twelve atoms, success. Um, that there have to be three universes, twelve atoms, and success. And we may as well have a bunch of niggers in Genesis chapter one. We may as well. And, and I don't see any of them. And, and that's what they're really all, all trying to squeeze into the story. That this, you know, Genesis, the story recapitulates. And, and when it recapitulates, it gives more detail. There's no doubt. It's plain English. The Genesis 1.9 through 1.13, or, or I'm sorry, Genesis 1.14 through 1.19 are basically a recapitulation of Genesis 1-3 through 1-5. And they also show that these days aren't literal 24-hour periods. Well, right. There was somebody I was discussing with who thought the creation happened in six 24-hour days, and I said, well, how do we measure a day? We measure a day in regards to the sun and the moon and the amount of time it takes the Earth to rotate on its axis, and if the Earth was void and without form, it stands to reason it had no axis and it wasn't rotating. So God doesn't have to operate on your 24-hour conception of a day being 24 of what you call an hour. Well, well right. The model, the, the model, the creation model is made in six days for an example to men that we should work six days and rest the seventh. So that's how the creation is depicted in Genesis chapter 1. Right. But God... God exists outside of a time. God, Yahweh God is the author of time. time. We should not imagine that he can be bound by time. The Apostle Peter says, one day with the, with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. I would take that further. I would further think that even Peter used the thousand years as an analogy, not as a literal thought, oh, one day with God is exactly 1,000 years with me. Well, if he wrote no, a billion years, most people wouldn't understand the quantity of a billion back then. Well, well exactly. Exactly. The Greeks had what words for thousands. They didn't have a word for millions. They didn't have one. I, I've never seen one in Greek, right? That they had words for thousands. Achillea is a thousand in, in Greek. And, and um, I don't remember seeing a word for millions. Now, now, they had words for thousands of thousands, right? But Peter's making an analogy. You, you know, Peter could have said 10,000, or, or, or he could have said a million if the Greeks had a word for a million. It wouldn't have mattered. Yahweh God is the author of time. He exists outside of time. He can't be bound by time, by our stupid sun and, and our silly little earth in this huge universe that this silly little earth going around this stupid little sun 
in, in one infinitesimally small part of the universe is going to regulate God. Right. The mind of man is small, but God is, he, he transcends time. He is timeless, and he is immeasur- immeasurable. So, so these days, to, to a man, the example is six earth days, and we rest a seventh. But we can't bind God to six earth days if he says he created everything in six days. He didn't create according to, well, well, which part of Genesis do you want to believe because it's recapitulating, right? If he created the sun and the moon on the fourth day, how could the first three days be literal 24-hour time periods? Who measured them? The sun and the moon, they didn't exist, right? The earth couldn't be going around the sun that wasn't there, or the sun couldn't be going around an earth if the sun wasn't. Right. However you want to look at it, it's ridiculous. It, it's absurd. Well, and, and it's all going to be blown apart in Genesis 2-4 where it says that the heavens and the earth were created in the day that God made man. What, which is a clear use of that word day as in age or an epoch that spanned all these ages in, in Genesis chapter 1. And, and we'll get to that in Genesis 2-4. We'll, we'll explain that. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. So I guess the naysayers here could say, oh, after his kind, they didn't make any females, only males. Well, well the thing is, what with the 1611 English language, that they didn't right. really use that, that. They used that word his right. in a lot of places where we would use its, right? Right, they use the masculine more than either neutral or the feminine. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and morning were the fifth day. And and this basically describes the, the, the creation of all bird life and sea life. Collectively, the animals created in the waters are called Nefeshche, which is a generic term for living creature. Shall I go on to the next? Please. And God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after his kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and God saw that it was good. Now, now this Genesis one twenty four, and and we'll probably have a whole program just on the beast of the field soon, or or, or at least a significant portion of a program. I, I it, it's a shame we have to waste a lot of time on that. The living creatures here are, again, the feshche, and and that's the generic term for living creatures that we see also used of living creatures in the sea in Genesis chapter 120 and and 121, right? Now, the Greek is 
suke zosan, and, and suke zosan is just, it, it means living soul, okay? After his or its kind. Now, cattle, this word in Hebrew is behema, and it's generally used throughout the Septuagint to describe a beast of burden. And the Septuagint translators wrote tetrapus, or four-footed animal, here for behema. And creeping thing, a creeping thing is in Hebrew the remes, or in Greek the herpeton. The herpeton is a snake or a serpent or, or anything that slithers on the ground. It could probably refer to several other varieties of animal also. The beast of the earth. It could refer to things like lizards and salamanders. The beast of the earth is a che aretz, che, a living thing, aretz of the earth. And the Septuagint translators wrote theria here. And, and in most places for that phrase in the Septuagint. Theria in Greek is a wild animal, as opposed to a beast of burden where we see cattle or behema, earlier in the verse. Here we have a theria. A theria could be a jackal. It could be a lion. It could be a tiger. It could be um, a baboon. But, but behema is also often later in Scripture the word used for baboons and for other bipedal beasts. Wherever you see beast of the field, Later in scripture where it's used as a pejorative for what appears to be hominids, the word is behema. A chayaretz is just a wild animal. And that's how the Septuagint translators understood it throughout scripture. There are so many people out there that want to convey um, or confer humanity, basically. Now, Now, the behema... In Genesis chapter 25, right, the behema isn't translated as a tetrapus, it's transla- which is just a four-footed animal, right? It's translated as a catanus. And a catanus in Greek is the type of four-footed animal that could be domesticated, like a horse or, a, or an ox or something like that. All right. Well, in um, Jonah chapter 3, you, you know the verse, I believe, where it talks about man and beast being clothed with sackcloth. What right. is, the, is the beast in Jonah 3? Well, whether or not you want to believe that beast was a non-Adamic person, and I understand that that's the general teaching in Christian identity, okay? The words are the words of the king of Assyria. Right. They're not the words of God. So you would have to think that the king of Assyria understood that non-Adamic men are really beasts, right? And there's absolutely no in historic indication whatsoever that the king of Assyria had that, that any of the kings of Assyria had that understanding. Um, you, could, you, you would have to, if you want to attribute that understanding to the king of Assyria, you would have to demonstrate that that understanding exists in Assyrian culture. Now, now, not for nothing, but I've read all of the extant um, Assyrian inscriptions that I could possibly obtain. Um, that there are 
well, probably volumes, and I have them, and I've read a good deal of them. There are volumes of Assyrian inscriptions which have been published over the last hundred years by the University of Chicago, and I've read a great deal of them, aside from the ones that are in ancient Near Eastern texts according to the Old Testament. And I don't think you'll find that the Assyrians had that cultural understanding. Well, they didn't have that cultural understanding. These are the words of the king of Assyria. They're not the words of God. And men who understand two seed line want to project what they believe onto the king of Assyria so that they could use that statement to fill their agenda. And, and I don't see where that's possible. If you want to project what you believe onto the king of Assyria, you have to prove that the king of Assyria had that same belief. And I don't see that in their culture. Right. It's and not there. If I could read Jonah 3, 7 and 3, 8, I think it's important to back up to 3, 7. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily on the God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Well, well animals dressed very ornately at that time first, right? And, and right. they were. that Their horns were decorated with gold, that they had very ornate accoutrements for, for their cattle and, and especially for, for their horses and things that they used for transportation. And it was a very rich and vain society, right? Well, well, that's all besides the point. You know, Yahweh God commanded the men of Nineveh to repent. And he only cares about the men of Nineveh. Yahweh God makes no statement concerning the beasts of Nineveh. Or the herds the, the flock. The words, right. The rest of the words belong to the king of Assyria. And you, can't, you cannot attribute the words of the king of Assyria, which Jonah has merely recorded, to be the word of God. That's like saying that the words of the friends of Job are the word of God. That's going to get us into a heap of trouble. That's like saying the words of Cain in Genesis chapter 4 are the word of God. That's going to get us to even more trouble. The words of the king of Assyria are there... For, for, a his, for a historical reason, to see that the Assyrians actually did believe Jonah, but the words of the king of Assyria are not the word of God, period. Just like the words of the Canaanite woman are not the word of God. Just like the words of Peter disputing with Christ are not the word of God. The words of man, well, when, when something's being said in the Bible, we have to see who's speaking it, under what context, who it's being spoken to, and, and, and we have to measure all those things. The words of man are not the word of God. If the prophet says, thus saith the Lord, that's a different story. That's the word of God. The prophet's speaking for God, not the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria is listening to Jonah and he's issuing a decree, and, and he wants everybody in his kingdom and, and every beast and whatever to wear sackcloth, and he wants to make sure that there's a repentance, but God only cares about the men of Nineveh. 
and the rest is just collateral, right? No response. Well, there's nothing I can say in dispute. It makes sense, and you'd have to have an agenda to try and argue that the words of the Assyrian king somehow become gospel. Right, and the words of the Assyrian king don't become gospel. Uh, otherwise, the words of the Book of Nazar could become gospel. Uh, otherwise, the words of the, the king of Edom or the king of Moab or, or however many other um, and, and many of them are vile, right? Words of men in Scripture could become gospel. So if, and something's of, in the, if something's in the Bible, someone's quoted there in the Bible, oh, it must be the Word of God. Well, well right. And, and just as often as not, it's words opposed to God. The words of Saul, his words were often... Um, condemned by God. His ideas were condemned. It, it's over and over again. The words of Jezebel. What about Jezebel? Well, it's in the Bible, so let's make doctrine out of it. The word, the word beast, beast of the field, or, or just beast by itself, that word does sometimes describe what we would call today people, let's call them people because the world calls them people, or let's call them men because the world calls them men. And, and evidently in many places, like where it says that the woman who joins herself to a beast shall die, and the beast shall be put to death, and the, and the woman shall be put to death. How about where um, the, the Exodus says, and Paul quotes in Hebrews, that any beast who touches the mountain shall be thrust through. And that certainly seems to be referring to hominids. But in those places where evidently people are being called beasts, that word beast is a pejorative. It's not a biological identification. It's not one of the names Adam gave out to the different creatures in Genesis chapter 2. It's a pejorative because they aren't worthy of being called men. They're being called beasts. Because they're not worthy of a proper name, they're being called beasts. It's a pejorative like if somebody calls you a dog. Well, you're not really a dog. And the word dog isn't um, offensive by itself. It describes an animal. But if they call you a dog... Well, that's more or less an insult. That is a pejorative. It's the use of the word dog, which is normally there's nothing wrong with the word dog, but using it to label you it is insulting. That's called a pejorative. That's what a pejorative is. So if I take this word beast, which basically belongs to all these animals, and I label one of these um crude, non-Adamic hominids as a beast, well, well, the word beast is, using, is being used as a pejorative. And, and I'm probably insulting the beasts. It's not a biological label. It's not a proper scriptural designation. They're beasts. If you want to know what happens to beasts... 
the beasts who were among us, the beasts who are spots in our feasts of charity, as the Apostle Peter called them, those people who are eating among us unworthily, those outsiders who have intruded into our feasts and who feast with us, who have eyes full of adultery, they are, in the words of the Apostle Peter, evil beasts made to be taken and destroyed. That's what they are. If there are people among us sharing in the gifts which God has bestowed on us and they're doing so unworthily, According to the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2, they are evil beasts made to be taken and destroyed. That's what they are. And there again we see the word beast. Well, he said natural brute beasts. Made to be taken and destroyed. Right. So they're natural. They're not even unnatural hybrids. He's saying that they're natural. Well, well, natural mean, meaning um, fleshly and not having the spirit as opposed to spiritual, which are the children of Adam. But the children of Adam have the spirit of God. They're brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. They're not made to be sent back to wherever they came from. Well, well right. Uh, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about this later, uh, later in our presentation. I would like to get through Genesis chapter 1 tonight. All right. 26. Please. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Now, now, I've already explained that Joshua Christ, Jesus Christ, put his own imprimatur on the extant account of the creation of Adam, expecting us to both read it and believe it when he told us that it was written in the law where he says, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Now, now that's recorded in both Gospels of Matthew and Mark. And he was citing a clause found in both Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 5, both times it's used of Adamic man, and about the same Adamic man. What I would like to do here is address the so-called dominion theory. The dominion theory advocates claim that this dominion given to Adamic man means that they, or, or that Adamic man, I should say, should have dominion over non-white peoples and teach them the law of God. Now, first I'd like to see where we find non-white peoples here. And even if you want to claim, like the, the, um, the people from the Jewish quarter of Christian identity claim, and, and the clowns that think they have truth from God claim the same thing. Even if you want to claim that Adamic man has dominion over the other races and should teach them the word of God because they're the beast of the field. 
Where in this statement do you see the beast of the field? Where does the Adamic man have dominion over the other races? Where does the Adamic man have dominion over the beast of the field? Not in this passage. I guess they would just say it's under the generic over every living thing that moves on the earth. Right. So we're to give every living thing that moves on the earth the laws of God? So it surely, even if that were the case, it surely doesn't mean that we are to teach the laws of God to beasts. In Genesis chapter 9, we see the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air and upon all that moves upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. That doesn't mean that we take them and put them over our knee and spank them until they learn the Ten Commandments. That doesn't mean that we teach them the laws of God. The laws of God, Genesis, from Psalm 147, from verse 19, he shows his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation, and that refers to the other white nations. Never mind the beasts. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. According to Psalm 50, the wicked shouldn't even have the covenant or the laws of God in their mouths. Well, the law wasn't given to them. It's our inheritance. It's not theirs. And it's absolutely foolish to imagine that we're to share the law of God with beasts. There's no basis for that anywhere in Scripture. You really have to pervert the meaning of Adam's dominion to come up with this that this garbage that's spewed by some people in, that are identity Christians and, and by British Israel. British Israel spews that dominion theory garbage. They, they basically do that so that they could justify the British Empire. And now Britain is overrun with the animals that they try to subject. Now the animals are subjecting them. See where that gets them. It's a failed idea. It's a horribly failed idea. Why do we keep insisting that we should repeat this horribly failed idea? Well, which is not the word of God. It's a boneheaded idea of man. That's what it is. It's not the word of God at all. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say that they went around the world trying to teach all the brown people Christianity, and now all the brown people are coming into England, and they're going to teach them Islam, whether they want it or not. Well, well right, Islam or, or whatever other vile practice they practice. Of course, and, and we're getting it here too, just not to the same degree. The children of Israel once again take up Baal worshiping. History repeats itself. No doubt. Because men want to justify imperialism, well, which is really Jewish in nature. Men want to justify imperialism through Genesis one twenty six and and one twenty eight, and and they're not teaching imperialism at all because there's nothing about other races here, and there's nothing about the beast of the field here. Demonstrated earlier on a program that you cannot separate sex and miscegenation in particular from Baal worship 
So basically today, every time one of our people goes to bed with an alien, it's a form of bail worship. Well, yes, it is. The children of Israel joined themselves to Baal Peor when they joined themselves to the daughters of Moab. Numbers chapter 25. Bail worship's not just about, you know, forming a circle around some idol and chanting. It's about having sex with the, the Baal priests or the temple prostitutes. Now, in Genesis one twenty six, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and over the cattle. And that's a proposal to make man. And that man in Genesis one twenty six would have dominion. And that man is Adam. Genesis one twenty seven. so God created man. And that man is Eth-ha-adam. In Genesis one twenty eight, if you want to be like the clown that thinks he has truth from God and say that Genesis one twenty six and one twenty seven are two different creations of two atoms, when you get to Genesis one twenty eight, which one is it that has that dominion? Well maybe he's blessing both of them. It means them, you know, the plural, them from twenty six and them from twenty seven. It's just ridiculous, right? It's just ridiculous. That those ideas are so absurd. Right, but as there's one creation of one Adamic man, and that's it. Can't fellowship with somebody or debate or discuss. There's nothing productive that can come from talking to someone who believes that they're an Elohim and they have unique truth that you can't possibly begin to understand because you're just immortal. Well, well, right. If you understand them, you go into the 127 category, and if you don't understand them, you must belong in the 126 category. You just aren't one of us because you don't get it. it it's it's um, Kool-Aid is what it is. It, it's Jim Jones and Kool-Aid all over again, and it just the cup is different. Genesis 128, and God blessed them. I'm sorry, you want to read it? Oh, all right. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Well, I can see a problem here. The the gap theory people, they're probably jumping up and down with the idea of replenish the earth. See, there was a civilization, and it was destroyed. They have to replenish the earth. Right. The... the um. The gap people love that because replenish means to refill. And I've heard them explain that. Oh, replenish means to refill the earth, so at one time it must have become empty. And and the problem with that is that the Hebrew word doesn't mean replenish. The Hebrew word doesn't mean refill. The King James took that liberty. The, the King James perversion, I, I, I don't want to call it a version. The King James version took that liberty if you read the Geneva Bible, if you read the, the um, ASV, if you read the Septuagint, all those versions simply have fill. If you look at the Hebrew word, Strong's number 4390, male, means to fill. It doesn't mean to refill. There's no preposition or prefix on the word that could make it mean to fill again or to refill. It simply means to fill. Replenish. 
replenish was an extremely poor choice on the part of the King James translators here. However, they should have simply written plenish. Plenish is an archaic word which means to fill. However, I'm sure the King James Version translators could not foresee the idiots who would later subscribe to the gap theory. I'm sure they couldn't foresee that. So it didn't really bother them to write replenish, right? But it just means to fill the earth. And that's what the, the, the Geneva Bible has, fill, where it says replenish. And so does the ASV. And the Septuagint has a Greek verb, which means fill, not refill. The gap theory is ridiculous. 29. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of the earth, and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. But well, the clown that um, assumes that he has truth from God, and, and I hate to keep bringing him up, but, uh, but I mean, he believes these things, and so he's a good example. He wants to say, his assertion is that man is Satan. Man is Satan. The man created in Genesis 1.26 is basically Satan. Wait, is so evil. God made Satan in his own image? The beast of Revelation 13, he insists, is the man of Genesis 126. That's, that's his assertion. That's blasphemous. Well, well, God, Yahweh God looked upon his creation, which includes Adamic man in the flesh, and he saw that it was good. God, therefore being the creator of the flesh, which is good. We cannot consider the flesh by itself and as God created it, to be evil. The flesh is not evil. Now, the flesh can be made rebellious by rebellious men to do evil. There's no doubt the flesh can be evil. There's no doubt. The two natures of Adamic man, I did a long sermon on it one time on, on, on an old Christogenia open forum. The two natures of Adamic man, we have the capacity to um, follow the spirit and do good. That's the meaning of Jacob Israel. Of When Yahweh changed Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel, he will rule with God. The flesh, after the will of God, is good. And the flesh, as man uses it in rebellion to God, that's the, 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 the um, degraded side of man. That can do very wickedly, and we've seen that throughout our history, that it could do evil. But God called the flesh good. The flesh is a tool in the hands of man. And, and just like a hammer can be good if you build a house with it, and it could be evil if you smash somebody's head in with it, well, well, just like the hammer, the flesh is a tool, and it could do good or it could do bad, but God created the flesh, and he created it for good. He looked upon it. And it was good. And God blessed the um, 
And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested. On the seventh day, I'm reading Genesis 2, 1. I'm sorry, I'm reading Genesis 2, 2. Let me start from 2, from 2 1. Thus saith, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he has made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made, and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Now, we have a ways to go yet tonight, at least another 20 minutes. God created the flesh, and behold, it was very good in the evening and the morning with the sixth day. We can't call the flesh evil. The flesh isn't Satan. The flesh isn't evil. The flesh is good. Man in the flesh has the capability to do evil. But that's not the way God created us. And that's not the purpose he created us for. The first scroll of Genesis, the creation account, is finished at Genesis 2-3. We will elucidate that further next week when we start with Genesis 2-4 and the second scroll of Genesis. And, and I will elaborate on those statements next week. I would like to talk about um, God's day of rest because the clowns in the Jewish quarter of Christian identity, the Novemberists, They've accused Clifton Emmerheiser and I of disregarding and ignoring God's day of rest. Well, I'm going to prove that God's still in that day of rest. Hebrews chapter 4 makes that very clear. I don't have to prove it. Paul proves it. Hebrews chapter 4 makes that very clear. Paul's address to the Hebrews, talking about the disobedience that the Israelites um, rebelled against Yahweh under Joshua and, and, and were therefore marched around a desert for 40 years. And I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, unless you would like to read it. I don't have that in front of me right now. Okay, I have it in front of me. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest... Any of you, meaning the Hebrews in Paul's time, what, which is about, by the Septuagint chronology, 5,500 years after the creation, right? 5,500 years after the creation by the Septuagint. Any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them, and by them he means the ancient Hebrews of the Exodus. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which had believed do enter into rest, as he said, and he's quoting from Psalms, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, I'm sorry, he's quoting from Exodus, and although the works were finished, from the foundation of the world. For he, meaning God, spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, 
And God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, referring to the Exodus, if they shall enter into my rest, and Paul says in Hebrews 4, 6, seeing therefore it remains that some, meaning some Israelites, must enter therein, meaning into God's rest. And they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limits, and, and that word means designates, and that's the way it's translated in the Christogenia New Testament. He limiteth a certain day, saying in David, meaning in the Psalms, today, after so long a time, now, now David is 4,500 years roughly at, after, the, um, after the creation, right? after the completion of the creation, I should say. Today, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Joshua, it says Jesus in the King James, it's a reference to Joshua, the son of Nun. For if Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth, therefore, a rest to the people of God, for he that is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man may fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. And what Paul is saying is that Yahweh rested from all his works, and that Yahweh was still in that period of rest when Joshua led the Israelites into the land of Canaan if they'd have been faithful, if they'd have done everything that was commanded of them. They could have entered into that period of rest along with Yahweh their God. And they didn't. So they weren't given the opportunity to rest. It was pulled away from them. And Paul is saying to the Hebrews, that in his time, in Christ, once again the children of Israel have an opportunity to enter into that period of rest, which God is still in because he has ceased from all his works. He is not creating anything anew. He worked for six days creating, for six epochs, for six ages. And on the seventh epoch or age, in God's view, God rested. Of course, we have that as a model for our weekly Sabbath cycle. But we shouldn't apply that model that we have and try to hold God to that model as if those days were literal days for God, in reference to God. In reference to God, they're not literal days. They're ages. But people they're an hour for us. 
people always try and apply their perspective or their understanding to everything else. Well, they just won't believe the scripture that we have. First, you have to believe the scripture that we have. God is in that period of rest to this day, and Christians have an opportunity to enter into it through Christ. You know, there is um, no mention at all anywhere in Scripture of an eighth day. However, there is an apocryphal book called the Book of the Secrets of Enoch, which is some kind, sometimes called Two Enoch. I do not agree that Two Enoch is canonical. In fact, I'll tell you it's not canonical. I don't accept Two Enoch as canon. What do we do with apocryphal scripture that we don't accept as canon? Well, I'll tell you what we do with it. We read it and we understand that these people that wrote these things understood Scripture in the manner which they've expressed. We don't necessarily have to understand the Scripture in the same manner that they do. We have to, under, well, we have to decide what Scripture is canonical and, and stay with that. And, and the best way to decide that is to see what Christ and the apostles actually quoted, and, and that's fine. Okay, that's the way Scripture should be seen. That's the way we should arrive at which scripture is canonical. What did Christ and the apostles use? And we're always safe if we use and stick to what Christ and the apostles used, okay? Now, the book of the secrets of Enoch, Christ and the apostles didn't use it. They definitely didn't use it because the book didn't even exist in the first century. There's little doubt the book didn't exist in the first century. What it does do for us is it gives us a viewpoint of somebody after the time of Christ who decided to write this book in Enoch's name, and it's, it's, it's claiming to be a, a wisdom book after the manner of, of the Enoch literature. And, and I don't consider it the canon as canon. I can't consider it as canon, but it tells me it, the book is definitely written from a Christian perspective, and it tells me what's in the mind of at least um, one early Christian, and, and that's fine. And, and I could take the book like that and, and understand Scripture the way he understood it, and I could accept it or I could leave it. And, and that's my, my prerogative because it's not canon. And, and that's fine. That's, that, that's what we should do with early Christian literature. So we could treat the book of the secrets of Enoch like any other early Christian literature, men trying to figure out the Bible and the scriptures that they were able to access, and, and, and we have their opinions, and, and we could take them or leave them, just like you could take or leave the opinions I have here. You could examine the Scripture through my opinions, and if you don't like it, you could kick it aside, because it's the Scripture that's what's important. All that being said, To Enoch is the only book I find in, in our Christian literature, and I could be wrong, there could be another mention somewhere else. I haven't read 100% of it, but I think I've pretty much come close Two Enoch is the only book which mentions an eighth day that I've seen. And I'm going to repeat it. I'm going to repeat, um, I'm going to read chapter 32 in the first verse of chapter 33 of Two Enoch. From verse 1 of chapter 32. This is available at the Sacred Text Archives, by the way, 
uh, online. If you find the Sacred Text Archives website, it's all free, and, and this is available. It's also in the Lost Books of the Bible and the Forgotten Books of Eden, which are available, I think, from Artisan Publishers, artisanpublishers.com. I have a copy of that somewhere. I haven't seen it in a couple of years. I may have loaned it out. Verse 1, I said to him, Earth thou art, and into earth, this is speaking to Adam, right? God speaking to Adam. And into earth, whence I took thee, thou shalt go. And I will not ruin thee, but send thee whence I took thee. Then I can again take thee at my second coming. It's talking about the resurrection. It's a Christian perspective. And I blessed all my creatures, visible and invisible. And Adam was five and a half hours in paradise. And I bless, and, and I'm guessing that that's a, um, an interpretation of the time Adam spent before his fall in the day equals a year formula of prophecy. That, that's what I'm guessing, right? And I bless the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, on which he rested from all his works. And I appointed the eighth day also, that the eighth day should be the first created after my work, and that the first seven revolve in, for, in the form of the seventh thousand, and that at the beginning of the eighth thousand, there should be a time of not counting, endless, with neither years nor months nor weeks nor days nor hours. Now, what does this tell us? Is this canon? No, it's not canonical. What does it tell us? It tells us that at least one early Christian understood that the days of creation were allegorical for ages or thousand-year periods in this case, and that the eighth day was not until the return of Christ and the resurrection. That the eighth day was still in the future. And when it began, it would be a time of not counting. An endless time with neither years, nor months, nor weeks, nor days, nor hours. Now, can we arrive at that conclusion from Scripture? I believe we can. We can because, first, Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that Yahweh is still, that our God is still in his period of rest, which we all await entry into when we finally conform ourselves to Christ, whether it be in this life or in the resurrection. Secondly, the day that we look forward to is described as the city of God is described in the last chapters of the Revelation, to be a time with what, where we don't need to be counting days, where we, there, there's no sun, because Yahshua Christ is our sun. Now, I know that's allegorical language, but it infers that we have a future that's timeless, and that's what eternal life is all about, if and when we attain it. So that's the eighth day, and that's how this one early Christian understood it who wrote to Enoch. So it's nice to see somebody else understands that, that's an early Christian, but we don't need it to arrive at those conclusions. 
I just wanted to mention this because it's the only place where I've seen reference to an eighth day. Literally, I mean uh, an explicit reference in, in, in Scripture or in apocryphal, apocryphal literature. So I hope that helps somebody's understanding. If not, at least you'll have my insight in, into um, the value of some of the apocryphal literature because not all apocryphal literature was created equal. Well, some maybe of I'll it, just get some most of it's not. I'm maybe sorry. I, I was going to say, maybe I can just get some truth from God. Right. Well, well I pray... Okay, that's the end of our presentation on Genesis chapter 1. There are some parts, such as the, um, the, the meaning of the beast of the field and the, let me call it the non-creation of the non-white races, because they're not found in the creation account. They're not found when you take an honest look at all these creatures created in Genesis chapter 1. The other races, non-Adamic people, are not found in the creation account. Now, even if you don't want to believe that, even if you want to believe, and we're going to discuss this at length in the near future, even if you want to believe that the other races are found amongst the beasts of the field, when we get to the New Testament and when we get to the Revelation, and when we get to the day of judgment and to the resurrection, don't try to make them men because the law of God is kind after kind. If indeed any of the other races are the beasts of the field, if they're beasts in Genesis chapter 1, they're beasts in Genesis chapter 50. If they're beasts in Genesis chapter 50, they're beasts in 2 Kings chapter 20. They're beasts in Matthew chapter 1. They're beasts in Revelation chapter 22. There'll always be beasts. They'll never be men. They'll never be judged on their works. They'll never be rewarded because, as Christ says in John chapter 3, unless a man is born from above, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. So even if you want to try to squeeze a nigger into Revelation in, into Genesis chapter one, I'm sorry, you're sh you sure as hell aren't going to squeeze him into Revelation chapter twenty-one. You might try to squeeze him into Revelation chapter into Genesis one, but you're not going to squeeze him into Revelation twenty-one. It's not going to happen. The names of the gates of the city of God are inscribed with the twelve tribes of Israel. If you're not one of those tribes, you don't see the city of God. It's that simple. You don't enter the gate. Right. So even if you want to believe that the other races are beasts in Genesis 1, they're still beasts in the Revelation. They're still be beasts in the beginning, and the law of God is kind after kind, everything after its kind, repeated over and over again in this chapter. Then there's still beasts at the end of time. They can't evolve into something more? Natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. That's the words of Peter. It's not the words of me. That's the words of Peter. Well, Peter's an exterminationist. I guess so. That mean Peter. 
<laughs> Thank you for listening. I will be here next Friday, Yahweh willing, with Acts chapter 16, part 2. Praise Yahweh. We will be here next Saturday with Genesis chapter 2. Good night. Praise Yahweh. Good night.